This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Jana Moore-Lone, Executive Director of Philosophy Learning and Teaching Organization, PLATO, an affiliate associate professor of philosophy at the University of Washington. Her book, Seen and Not Heard, Why Children's Voices Matter, is just out from Roman and Littlefield Press. What happens when we take children seriously as philosophical thinkers? What if we try to hear them about topics such as climate change, solitude, and the meaning of friendship? In Seen and Not Heard, Why Children's Voices Matter, Lone engages with the voices of many children in philosophical conversation to learn not only what they think, but also what hearing children can make possible for our shared world. Jana Moore-Lone, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for having me. Um, well, let's start with talking a little bit about your background in philosophy and your interests and how you came to write a book about, um, about children's philosophical voices. So I came to philosophy, I was an undergraduate major in philosophy, and then I ended up going to law school and was a lawyer for quite a few years. And as a lawyer, I worked a lot with families and particularly with children. And I could see as my practice grew how ultimately, in many ways, disempowering the law was for children. Their voices just were really not heard in the legal um, arena. And at the same time, I was working on my master's in philosophy because I loved philosophy and I didn't want to let go of it. And so I finished my master's and I was pregnant with my um, first child. And I decided to keep going and, and let go of my practice, in part because I'd really started to get interested in education as a way to provide children with kind of the tools they needed to navigate for themselves some of the circumstances of their lives, which I was seeing was very challenging for them to be able to do within the confines of the law. And as I was working on my PhD, my oldest son, I had a second child, and then my oldest son turned four and started to ask these questions that I recognized as philosophical. Why is there hatred in the world? Where do numbers come from? And I got really interested in thinking about philosophy as a potential way to work with children in the way that I had been considering. Um, And so I started doing a little pre-K philosophy group with his preschool uh, class. And I found that these children were just reliably interested in talking to me about questions like what is bravery or what makes someone a friend, etc. And I began to think that this could be philosophy could provide a kind of a unique experience for children in that the questions we were considering together 
don't have final settled answers in the way that so many, if not most, of the questions that students consider in school do. And so that allows for a kind of playfulness with ideas, a kind of um, ability to think for yourself about how you see the world and why that I thought could be unique to philosophy. So I started the what was then the Center for Philosophy for Children and is now the Philosophy Learning and Teaching Organization, which has a relationship with the University of Washington. And I've been doing this now for 25 years. And I wrote a book uh, in 2012, uh, primarily for parents and grandparents and other adults interested in having these kinds of conversations with children. And since then, I've just been thinking a lot about the ways in which children continue to be discounted as knowers and all the ways that I have learned from children over the years, the ways their ideas and questions and thoughts have changed my own philosophical thinking and orientation. And so that's what led to the idea for the book. Yeah. And you record that so well in the book, the way talking with children shapes. Oh, and there's another friend in the background. Um, it shapes your your thinking, the way you become impacted by these conversations with children. Um, but you start out and it makes some sense coming from the law where you're seeing you're seeing what's happening to children in these spaces that seem supremely not designed for them. Um, but you you start out by talking about how children are not heard. And so will you talk about why you think children aren't taken seriously as makers of meaning and what you think we, we lose by not hearing children? Yeah. Um... So I, I think that I, as I, as I was starting to think about this book, I really began to look at the ways that, A, our understanding of children and our appreciation for children has changed in a lot of ways, particularly in the last, I'd say, 50 years. There's a growing appreciation for child-centered spaces and for schools being more child-centered, etc. But at the same time, I would also frequently see adults recount something a child had said that was particularly provocative or deep by describing it as adorable, how cute they are, or amusing. And I would just and I would watch the way in which adults frequently, even well-meaning adults, just kind of dismiss children's larger questions or ideas because of their age. So even though we kind of love youthfulness, we still demean children. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, ageism is a huge part of that. There's there's a significant amount of, of remaining ageism in our culture, and it plays out in all kinds of different ways depending on your age. But for children, I think we just assume that because they have less life experience, that their perspectives are less important. And there's a kind of an epistemic injustice that gets directed at children where our unexamined assumptions about them lead us just to fail to see them as knowers and as worthy of being heard. And it's been interesting to me that with all the work that's been done on epistemic justice and injustice, in philosophy, there's actually been very little done about 
its relationship to children. And only in the last few years has that work started to grow. And I think the other piece of it is that we are very influenced by this developmental model of children. So we think, for example, okay, this child is five. This is what they're capable of. They couldn't possibly do this. Gareth Matthews, who worked a lot in philosophy of childhood and was one one of my mentors called it the deficit model of childhood, that we see children as kind of beginning people, kind of almost not fully capable beings who will eventually grow into fully capable adults. And so this idea that children are incomplete and immature uh, leads us to just fail to see them as worthy of being listened to. And I think the other piece of that, to say one more thing about the kind of reasons that we don't take them seriously as makers of meaning, is that we are very focused on the value of autonomy in our culture. Mm. And children, of course, are dependent on adults for many of their basic needs. And even though, of course, none of us is fully autonomous and all of us are dependent on other people in many ways, because we see children as dependents, we see them as less valuable and their ideas as less important. And so to answer the second part of your question, what I think we lose through not hearing them is a couple of different things. One, I think that children enter philosophical spaces with a great deal of openness to possibilities and imagination and a willingness to play with ideas that, which are central skills for philosophy, right? But I think adults struggle a lot more with some of those things than children do because they're new to the world. They're in a I guess what I would characterize as a state of discovery, right? Everything is new. And so they have this kind of beginner's mind of freshness mm-hmm. of perspective. And they're, they're really much less, especially children before the age of say 11, much less self-conscious about how smart they sound or how philosophically sophisticated they appear. They, they just don't care about that. They're willing to just throw themselves into the ideas. And they're also really open to changing their minds and making mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think there's a philosophy session that I do with children where at least one child at some point doesn't say, you know, actually, I've changed my mind about that. I don't think what I said earlier is quite right. And I find that when I work with adults, that adults have a much harder time doing that. So one thing we we miss out on by failing to include children in these conversations is their perspectives, is their willingness to, for their openness to innovation and their willingness to try out new approaches. The other piece is I think that we regain a sense of the world that we had as children. I mean, of course, all of us were children, but I think many adults, if not most of us, kind of forget what it was like to be a child. And we look back on childhood and it's pretty hazy for us. And when we're with children and we can kind of enter the world that that is created by their their points of view, it get, gets us back to a sense of the world is full of possibilities. I always think of one of my students once said, I think she was maybe nine or 10, and she said, a lot of things are possible, a lot more things than we think. And I love that because for me, that is so encapsulates the way in which children approach these kinds of conversations. They are just open to new possibilities in a way that's really inspiring. And this is this is surely one of the, the problems of epistemic injustice is that it shuts down possibility, the, 
that part of what's getting narrowed is the the range of of possibilities for the world um, by by cutting out certain by cutting out systematically certain voices, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, well, so one of the things you talk to kids about is childhood, um, mm-hmm. and so in this chapter, um, many of your chapters start with epigraphs, and then you have children's voices often set up right at the beginning of the chapter. You'll have transcripts of conversations with them, um, and so you, and then sometimes children's quotations become epigraphs, um, and so this chapter has that that kind of structure. And I'm wondering first about your decision to structure chapters that way to have these epigraphs and then to have these children's voices um and it's a they're great epigraphs they're um i'll I'll let you talk about where they come from but they're they're about about children a lot um but also from children's literature and then um and then i want to know what you think children teach us about childhood by talking philosophically about the concept of childhood Okay, great. Um, well, first, the structure of the book. So the, I'll talk about the epigraphs first, and then I'll talk about the, the dialogues that are part of the chapters um, after the first chapter. Um, so the epigraphs really came because a lot of the way in which I prompt these kinds of conversations with children is through literature and or poetry and other texts or works of art, et cetera. And I found that many of them refer to childhood. And so it seemed fitting to include a lot of these quotes from writers and poets, et cetera, in the book as kind of a sort of gateway to the issues that I'm examining in the book. Um, one of the ones I love the most is is actually begins the book. It's the first one of the book, and it's, it's from Louise Gluck, the poet, and she says, we look at the world once in childhood. The rest is memory. And I love that because I think that there is a way in which how the world appears to us as children forms us more deeply in the sense of how we then grow to see the world as through the rest of our lives than any other period in our lives. Um, and then I, so when I, when I set out to write this book, I knew what I wanted to do conceptually. I knew that I wanted to showcase the ways in which I'd learned from children. I knew that I wanted to touch on some of the primary topics that come up in my conversations with children, like childhood, like death, like happiness, etc. But I wasn't I was struggling with how exactly to do this. And so I started going back and reading through, I have lots of transcripts and recordings and notes from all these sessions that I've done with children over the years. And it was like their voices sort of led the way for how the book needed to be structured. And so then I realized that the way in which these topics really needed to start was through what the children had had to say. So that's how I ended up deciding to begin most of these chapters with dialogues, bits of dialogues with children, because I really wanted to honor their voices as being at the core of what the book's really about. Um, and then in answer to the last part of your question about what children teach us about childhood, 
there's one um, uh, statement in the book that I'll just read from one of the conversations that's in the chapter on childhood. And the child says, I mean, childhood is not just about becoming an adult. It's a time of its own. What happens to kids affects us our whole lives. That's mostly not true for adults. I think what we experience, we feel more deeply and it stays with us. And I think that one, I think that uh, that's, that's a very true statement. It really, um, it really moved me because I think that childhood is in many ways the defining period of our lives and that children have really reminded me of how true that is. I mean, I, I think I've always known that. I've always thought about my childhood as such an important part of leading me on the paths that, um, that I've traveled in my life. But I think that what I've, what I've learned being with children is kind of how I can experience that much more concretely through their eyes, that how how pivotal childhood is and how many of the assumptions we then carry through the rest of our lives come from that time is something I've really learned from spending a lot of time with children and talking with them about the nature of childhood. Yeah. Um, and you move on then to think through this other really rich area of friendship that is also so central in childhood. Um, and there Aristotle appears alongside Frog and Toad and Charlotte and Wilbur. Um, and I have to say, as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking about next time I teach Nicomachean Ethics about putting Frog and Toad also on the syllabus for undergraduates um, because it, as you work through it, the chapter, I was like, there's really something to this this frog and toad in particular, it feels like to me. Um, so, okay. so, so, so thank you for that, because I think you, you really opened me up to, to a way that might really speak to, to folks who are struggling with their first philosophy class. Um, but so here we have Aristotle alongside frog and toad and Charlotte and Wilbur to help us think about friendship. Um, and you, you talk with a lot of kids about this topic and, two key themes that come out, and these are going to be um, themes that I think a lot of people have really had to think about over the last couple of years, which are loneliness and solitude. Um, and uh, so what does, what do these conversations with kids and the stories pitched to them, Frog and Toad and Charlotte and Wilbur and, and, um, and the rest, help us think about friendship, loneliness and solitude? Yeah. So, I mean, first I would say in response to what you, what you began with, uh, that I, Arnold Lobel, who wrote the Frog and Toad stories, is just a deeply philosophical writer. And uh, I, I know that a number of my colleagues do use Frog and Toad and other children's literature in their undergraduate philosophy classes. And I have found in my own classes that my undergraduate and graduate students, real, it really resonates for them uh, because these ideas are, are this very similar ideas, right, to what we read in Aristotle, but they're told through these very engaging characters. And I think that we, we, it, I mean, it's, it's, I think it is another example of ageism to some extent, the way we sort of um, look at children's literature as this sort of, you know, 
closed space once we become adults. It's like something we wouldn't go back to unless we have young children or something. I mean, I have, for example, in my study, I don't know, hundreds of picture books. And often when people come here to work with me, they'll, they'll kind of laugh at that, you know? I mean, and, and I just always find that interesting because I think, well, they're actually some of my favorite books. They're some yeah, of the best absolutely. books I have. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I yeah. really encourage all of us to take advantage of how philosophically rich and suggestive Arnold Lobel and many other children's authors are. And then, so uh, on friendship, I would say that children's perspectives about friendships, I think, are about friendship are particularly valuable because friendship's so central in their lives, right? I mean, once they start school, children spend so much time with their friends. And childhood is the time where we learn how to be a friend, how to keep a friend, sometimes how to let go of a friend. And we have the kind of time to focus on friendship that we often don't have the rest of our lives. And the friendships that we have had in childhood are particularly intense, right? You think about how people get on social media and reconnect with childhood friendships and how meaningful that is to them and how important those friendships were. And so I think what children have to say about childhood is particularly valuable because they're in that place in life where they are thinking about their friendships and, and friendship in general all the time. And during the pandemic, especially, so we started doing a lot of online classes with children during the pandemic, and we had lots of conversations about loneliness and solitude. Um, and one of the things that emerged both from stories like the Frog and Toad books and Charlotte's Web, but also from the conversations that I've had with children is how much loneliness can actually be a more powerful emotion for us when we're with other people than mm. when we're alone. And the children often talk about this, how being with a group of people and not feeling connected to them can be such a lonelier feeling than being at home alone. And there's this wonderful um, line at the end of one of the frog and toad stories called it the story is called alone to alone and at the end of the story arnold lobel de, de, describes frog and toad as spending the rest of the day alone together and so i've talked with children many times about what what does that mean alone together it's sort of a really interesting way to describe them spending the rest of the day together and during the pandemic, you heard this phrase a lot, right? Alone together. It was kind of a slogan, meaning we're all like in this together, even though we're all at home alone. And then psychologist Sherry Turkle talks about alone together. And by that, what she means is we're actually together, we're in the same space together, but we're really alone because we're always focused on our devices and that is separating us from other people. So we're together, but we're alone. But in the Frog and Toad story, alone together is neither of those things. Frog and Toad are together, they're physically in the same place, and they're not disconnected at all from one another. And so what I've thought about through these conversations I've had with children, what has kind of emerged from me is what that means is that they're alone together in the sense that they're so comfortable with each other, that they're able to be together and behave exactly as they would if they were alone. 
So just completely be themselves. I think Virginia Woolf described it as, quote, myself being myself, right? They're able to do that with someone else. And that maybe that's what a true friendship is about. Children often talk about how a a real friend is someone you can be yourself with. And we've had lots of conversations about what that means, what it means to be able to be yourself with someone else in the way you can be when you're alone. Um, The other thing that these conversations have led me to think about, um, and that the Frog and Toad books in particular have led me to think about, is the importance of solitude. Children will often talk about wanting to be alone and the importance of being alone and how they understand in the story why Frog wants to be alone, even though Toad doesn't understand why Frog wants to spend the day alone. And the children will will articulate how often they feel as if their desire to be alone isn't always easily understood. And I think, you know, when children say they want to be alone, I'm not sure that often adults appreciate the importance of solitude and the importance of having time to think your own thoughts. That's one way one child once described it to me. Because I think that we we want to fill children, we want to make sure children's lives are f- full of you know important things, and we want to make sure they're not feeling sad, etc. But that actually having this time to be alone is so important. And I, I one of the things I, I've thought a lot about listening to them is how adults often don't model that. Right? We're not we're not very comfortable with solitude. I mean, I I for example, I love to go out to dinner by myself, but I'll often notice that when I do that. You know, there'll they'll be people, are you okay? Like, can we get you anything? Would you like to come join us? Like, no, actually, I'm, I'm good. Uh, so I think there's there's a, a discomfort with that, which I think is really unfortunate because personally, I think solitude is such an important part of being able to actually be connected to other people. Yeah, and and for generating generating ideas, right? Like things come to you out of out of boredom or out of not, not having anything in particular that you're attending to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, I'll just say as a parent, a hard one, because there's this, um, there's always, there's a pressure to always be adding value to your child. And so to just leave them alone to do nothing is, um, it, there's not a lot of encouragement for that. So uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting just to say one of the one of the things a couple of children said to me during when we were meeting online during the pandemic was that one of the things they appreciated about that time, even though there were, there were a lot of things about it that were really hard. Um, and this was when the schools were completely closed. And so they were home um, was that they felt like they had so much more time to themselves, that they weren't constantly running to one class or activity or another after school, and that it really made them realize how stressful life was for them often. So that was that was illuminating. Yeah, no, and insightful on their part. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so then, and this is related to friendship in some way, the political voices chapter. Um, there's a, a lot happens, I think, in this chapter. And the thing that really stuck out to me was was how how the children handled the proposal from Josiah. Um, mm-hmm. So this is in a conversation about race. And it really it really stuck out to me because there was a way in which the kids um, let let Josiah be Josiah and have his idea. Um, but they also expressed their 
disagreement. Um, and it's just really powerful. So will you talk through what his proposal was and how they how they handle his proposal? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, this was it was quite a powerful moment. This was in a dis- discussion about the civil rights movement. And Josiah, and this was in a class that that is uh, very diverse. And the children were talking about how racism and segregation are still prevalent, even though segregation isn't legal anymore. And so Josiah says, and these were, as I recall, these were like nine-year-old children. And so Josiah says, you know, I have an idea. I know what we need to do to solve this problem. And he gets up and there's a map of the world on the uh, classroom wall. And he points to the map and he says, okay, what we should do is we should divide the world right down the middle and white people should live on one side of the world and black people should live on the other. And there was a kind of stunned silence (laughs) that met the suggestion, including I think from me and from the classroom teacher who looked at me and I looked at her kind of like, okay, what do we do here? And I, but you know, my instincts are always to trust the children and to take it where they want to go as long as it's manageable. And so I sort of continued on and said, well, that's quite a dramatic idea. What do you all think? And it was really, what was really beautiful about this, even though it was, you know, it was not comfortable, um, was that the children took the idea seriously. I mean, you could see that many of them had very strong reactions to this. Many of them thought it was a terrible idea, but they had a lot of respect for Josiah and for just sort of, we talked a lot in philosophy about how we take ideas seriously if someone can give good reasons for them, even if they seem outlandish. And we try and come up with reasoned reactions to them. So it's not just that's a terrible idea. It's why is that a terrible idea? And the children sort of played this out in a really thoughtful, respectful way that was just extremely inspiring. So basically, you know, they they looked at the kind of concrete ideas problems with this, like you'd have to move people from one side of the world to the other. What if you have friends who are of a different race? What happens? And as I recall, one child asked that and Josiah said something like, well, that would be too bad, but you know, that would be one of the costs of this. I mean, that's just how it's going to have to be. And other children said, well, wait a minute, you know, I have a black mom and a white dad, what would happen? Like, what would we do? And how would that actually work? And then one of the children said, actually, what will end racism isn't separation. Look what happened with segregation. I know what will solve this eventually. Families and friendships are what will end racism. And it was just what what really struck me was how they were calmly able to work their way through what could have been a very seen as a very inflammatory suggestion. And I, it made me think a little bit about some of the, you know, news shows where people are constantly just screaming at each other, often voicing very inflammatory ideas in order to get a reaction and then getting that reaction. And, And of course, I don't think Josiah was doing this for the reaction. I think he was honestly trying to think of a way that we could end racism. But then the children 
took it equally seriously. And even though ultimately concluded this was a not a very good idea, they were able to do it respectfully rather than and and without characterizing Josiah negatively at all. They they were critical of the idea, but they weren't critical of him personally. And I remember because one of the I often have some of my college students come and observe these sessions and help out in small groups, etc. And one of them at the end of it came up to me and said, I don't think I've ever witnessed a more open and honest conversation about racism. And I wish, you know, we adults could talk to each other like that. It was Mm. very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it gets at this quality that children have of like kids will accept people doing themselves in this way that is, um, it's it's a profound form of um, attention to the world. I mean, this you talked about this earlier that uh, because a little bit, it's a little bit about not knowing the rules, but even kids who have learned some of the rules um, know there are exceptions, and so they're interested to see how the exceptions work out. Um, I think, yeah, there's something about um, that. It's, a, I guess, an open-heartedness, but it's it's without it's a, without a lot of intention, I guess, sometimes. But it's really powerful and leads them into um, some amazing conversations, I think, and and relationships. Yeah, they're so honestly interested in what each other think. I think that's the thing that really impresses me, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, they are, are, can be real role models of, around yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And they do, they do, they can really just like kind of wrap together for a while about things and let it, yeah, spit out totally. Um, well, okay. So I, I sort of read together two chapters that are distinct in the book and one is on happiness and one is on death. Um, and I think, I think Aristotle shapes me on this, the reason that I link happiness and death and you point to this a bit but um but you you know i and you get to this about how we could even judge happiness without knowing um what happens over the course of of a person's life um but these are these are both i think difficult topics and they're um as you say like the goal that many parents express is that they just want their children to be happy and then death obviously um there's a lot of taboo around it it can elicit a lot of feelings. So um, how, how have these conversations with kids shaped your thinking about happiness and death? Oh, there are so many things I could say here. Yeah. So I think I'll start with two, I, I think I'll talk about two different stories or two different kind of clusters of things. Um, one is on happiness. And this is related, actually, I think, to death. Um, What strikes me the most is the way children seem to understand how closely happiness is related to sadness. Mm. Um, We often talk about whether you can be happy and sad at the same time. um, And and that's often a question that children will raise. And I actually had a question, I had a conversation just a couple of days ago with a group of fourth and fifth grade students about happiness. And we began talking about whether sadness is necessary for happiness. And one child said, and this is a quote, sadness helps you live. If you don't have sadness, you can't experience everything. Hmm. And it was in part a way of saying you, you need all emotions in order to have a happy life. And I talk about this in the book because it comes up several times where the children talk about how there's a difference between 
being happy and feeling happy, and that sometimes being happy also includes feelings like sadness and anger and things we might characterize as negative emotions. And they seem just kind of intuitively to understand that having the full range of emotions in life is what's really necessary for a happy life. And and there's actually been some current research about this that that confirms this um, instinct that children seem to have, that happiness is complicated and that we not only can feel happy and sad at the same time, but in some ways, sadness is always a part of happiness. There's um, hmm. another child, a nine-year-old child in a class a couple of years ago said, and this is another quote that I'll just read because it's I find it to be a really, really meaningful. She said, I agree that you can be happy and sad in this at the same time. Even though we think of sadness and happiness as opposites, they can sometimes be put together. That's usually moments when you feel happy in your life, and then you realize your life isn't going to last forever. It will maybe last a long time. I'm only nine years old, and I have my whole life ahead of me. But still, I want to stay in life, and I know I can't. Hmm. So she had this sense that, which I, I, I totally related to it, where when you're at your most joyful, the, some of the most joyful moments in your life, so the birth of a child, say, and you realize your, or you're sort of deeply aware of your mortality in a way that brings a tinge of like bitter, bitter sweetness, I guess I would say, into the experience of enormous happiness. And maybe it's that the more deeply we experience joy, the more pronounced is our sense of how fragile life is. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, yeah, I, I think Ava really, this uh, young child who said this, really captured that well. And I, it's a kind of similar conversations that I've had with children about death, where they have talked about how much being mortal is how how much of that experience of living a mortal life is a key to living a fulfilling life, and that we we'll often talk about immortality. Would you live forever if you could? And those conversations typically lead to students, although they might initially say, yeah, I'd want to live forever. Well, as they think it through, they start to think about the pitfalls of that and whether living an immortal life could ever be the same as living a mortal life. In other words, we think, okay, if I were immortal, it would be just as I am now, only it would last forever. And the kids will have sort of said over these conversations, I don't think it would be like that because if you if you were immortal, you would not be, for example, motivated to do things because you knew you'd have all the time in the world, uh, and there would be no 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 nothing pushing you to try and accomplish anything. And other children have talked about how life is all about change, and if you were immortal, you would nothing would change for you in a way. I mean, the world might change, but you wouldn't change. And that that would be such a very different experience than the kind of life that we live now as people who have a finite amount of time. 
Uh, one of the things that's been really instructive for me uh, about death and children is a how much questions about death almost always come up in with, when in conversations with children. It is they are very uh, tied into the idea that one day they're going to die. They think about it a lot. They want to talk about it um, in ways that adults generally don't, (laughs) generally try to avoid. And I think that children get the message that many adults are not interested in talking about this conversation and talking about death are very uncomfortable. And I think often adults approach it as if, well, we don't know what to tell them. We don't have any answers for the children. But my experience is, the children understand that. They're not necessarily looking for answers. They're looking for a confirmation that there are other people who are thinking about these questions as much as they are. I actually had, after the book came out, I had an adult from, um, I think he was from Syria, write to me and say, you know, this was so helpful to read because when I was a child, I thought all the time about death and there was no one I could talk to about. My parents did not want to hear about it. There was no way I was bringing that up in a classroom. And it's, I think it's so important for children to know there are these places where they can have conversations so that they hear that, among other things, that other children are thinking about the same thing. And then one other thing I would just say is, which is a sort of a return to what we talked about initially and about how open children can be to thinking uh, about some of these questions, is I had a conversation with a third grade class a couple of years ago. And the question the children wanted to talk about is what happens when you die? And what was so interesting to me was that you had this class of children with very a very wide ranging set of beliefs. There were children in the class who were deeply religious and had very strong convictions about what happens after death. There were children who were equally sure that they were materialists and that when, you know, when you, when your body dies, that's the end. And then there were a lot of children who weren't sure, but they were sharing their thoughts about what happens or what could happen when you die. And what was really, what really struck me in it is how many times the children would say things like, well, whatever you believe, your belief is as good as anyone else's because no one knows for sure. No one has any proof. There's no evidence to show that one idea about what might happen when you die is any better or worse, really, than another. And what's really helpful is to just hear what everybody thinks about it so that you can kind of think for yourself about what makes sense for you. And I just watched this group for about 30 minutes have this very open conversation. And I thought, this is such a beautiful illustration of a conversation on a difficult topic with people who have very different perspectives and are able to have it with such respect and regard for one another and one another's views. Yeah. Again, leaving people space. Yes, exactly. And just being curious, being really curious about what other people think. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've recently been spending time with a three-year-old who um, just asks almost everybody, um, so when are you going to die? You know, and it's, uh, and I think to elicit the I don't know response, because I think that she's seeking confirmation that people don't know, right? She's trying to kind of figure the concept out a little bit. 
Um, and and maybe because the emotional reactions are so interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally. mentioned in the book one, um, also a three year old. One three year old, her her mother told me that she kept at, she keeps asking, "Mommy, why do the days keep coming?" And mm. I, I, that's I just find that quite haunting. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, your book ends with a chapter on listening, and I was thinking about um, the philosopher Carolyn Cusick talks about how philosophers don't think about listening very much. Um, <laughs> so I loved this this philosophical work on listening, um, and and so I'm I'm curious. I would love you to talk about the things that you've learned about listening from from trying to hear children, and in this situation that you've identified as one of epistemic injustice and where you know that there are, there are real um, obstacles in the way of hearing, hearing these people's thoughts as serious and substantive. Yeah, I think, I think what I've learned from first and foremost is that we are often not listening even when we think we are. And that listening requires a kind of attentiveness and intentionality that is demanding. Because we often hear what other people, and particularly children, have to say, kind of with an overlay of all our own assumptions and expectations. So we assume we either know what the child is trying to say, or we're thinking about what we're going to say next, or we're thinking we can help them say it more clearly. And I think especially with children, because we're so used to being in this role of helping them developmentally and, and, you know, and often it is helpful to try and clarify what a child is saying or make sure you understand. But sometimes it can really get in the way. And I've found, you know, even though I've worked on this for a long time, that sometimes I jump in too quickly with a clarifying question or saying, oh, okay, I think what, what you're saying is only to realize that that probably isn't what the child was saying, but I shut it down because children's reaction to that often, because they're so used to adults being the authorities, is to say, yeah, that's what I meant, even if it really isn't what they meant, or they just stop talking, or it just, or they say, yeah, that's, you know, th- that's fine, or whatever. It's just, and, and so it, and it's not to say that sometimes that isn't helpful, but it's really delicate. And it really, like, as I say, requires a kind of intentionality and attentiveness so that you're really in it with the child and you're not trying to speed it along to get the conversation moving. You're really trying to understand. And that also requires a kind of vulnerability on the part of the listener because you have to be willing to say, I don't understand, or I'm not following this, or could you say more about that? Because I'm not sure I really see it. And and that can be challenging for us to be able to admit that we're not we're not following something or we don't understand something. The other piece that I think is really important that I have learned about listening is to allow for silence. Uh, because I think in our culture, and certainly in our discipline, this is true, there is not a lot of comfort with silence. There is a a lot of talking, and there's a lot of interrupting, and there's a lot of pressure to fill the spaces with words. And 
what I've learned is when you are comfortable with pauses that last longer than is comfortable, that you will make room for people, especially those of us who aren't as quick to articulate our thoughts with words, to say what they mean or to try out saying what they mean. And I always tell my graduate students, so when you're in a classroom with kids and there's a silence, let it go and then let it go some more. And then when you start to get really uncomfortable, let it go a little bit more. And invariably, not always, but invariably, someone who rarely says something will speak. And so that is, I think, one of the key things I've come to understand about listening, which is that listening, just like music is as much about the pauses as it is the sounds, so too with a conversation that is as much about the silent spaces as it is about the words and being able to let that unfold without putting too much pressure on it really can allow for extraordinary communication to happen. And I think that maybe the most important value to bring to all of that is curiosity to just be honestly curious about what another person thinks or how they see the world and being willing to kind of upend all your own assumptions or beliefs to really just focus on what you're hearing from someone else. Yeah. Yeah. That not trying to, it's because we're in a situation where it's like, well, there's a structure to the interview and I need to get on to the next question. So I'm just thinking about like just leaving time for there to be, yeah, to just take in the ideas. Um, I was also thinking about, um, I can't remember what Magda Gerber calls it, but it's something like needs nothing time or do nothing time, but just this kind of magical time in which you're not trying to get teeth brushed or like pajamas on or dinner made or anything where you're just just being. Yep, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yep. And it's such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially in a classroom where, as you just described, I mean, you have, say, 50 minutes for the philosophy session. And so you want to make sure that there's a lot that happens. But I think, you know, not putting too much pressure on it and letting things unfold can, can really create an environment that has way more richness and goes way further than putting that kind of pressure on a, you know, a brief time period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's deeply philosophical, right? Just to yes. see where the, where wisdom leads you, right? <laughs> yeah. And I always say to the, I mean, philosophy takes time. It's, it, it, yeah, you know, indeed. yeah. Indeed. That, that, and, but we don't structure it pedagogically that way. So we're not often exactly. modeling that or, exactly. or there's a lot of pressures not to model that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually, um, I'm in the very early stages of thinking about another book about the relationship between childhood and the elder stage of life. Mm. Um, And I started thinking about it because I've been thinking about the way in which attentiveness to the reality of death seems strongest at the beginning and at the end of life. And that led me to just think more about the similarities and the differences in the experiences of people in these spaces of life. So for example, I think both children and elders feel often on the Mm -hmm. outside 
right? They're, they're, they've become a little bit or, or are a little bit on the periphery of the, what's going on in the society that's generally run by people who are kind of in the middle of life, however we define that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a dependence on others, which is increasingly so for many older people and decreasingly so for children. But there's a kind of but dependency is a factor of those periods of life in, in a way that is less true in other the other parts of one's life. There's also less social power that both of these groups have. And the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot that, that I've been talking to people about is that there's a there's a sense in which when you when you are you know an adult in the kind of prime of your life or the middle of your life often you can feel a little bit like you're on autopilot right you're like doing all these things you need to do every day and you're not always really focusing intently on each thing you're you're you know driving and thinking about a million things or whatever and i think at the beginning of life and at the end of life, you're really not on autopilot very much. There's a deliberateness because for, for young children, you're just figuring out how to do things. And so you're really paying attention to everything that's going on, both around you and in every moment that you're existing. And I think towards the end of life, there's a similar focus because there's a lot of change around you that starts to be hard to follow and that there's a worry that you're not going to be able to do certain things. And so there's sort of a greater deliberateness that starts to set in as you take on new tasks, say with technology, et cetera. And so I've just been thinking about that and of course there's lots of differences too i mean i think between being very very young and being older including of course life's totally ahead of you and much of life is behind you but i think there's some similarities in the way that life is experienced in our society by people on these in these two ends of life shall we say that have a lot of similarities including i think that we have a lot to learn from both these groups that for example this this being on autopilot which a lot of people are doing all kinds of things meditation yoga etc to to try and avoid, to try and find more ways to be fully present. I think that there are models at both ends of life for how to do that in a way that could be instructive for the rest of us. Uh, that's great. I can't wait to see that project. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be a little while. As I say, I'm in the early stages, but I am. Sure. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I've been thinking about it a lot. And, and, you know, there's been very little written in philosophy about age, I know um, it's like Simone de Beauvoir. Exactly. I'm to think about. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's since the coming of age. There's really been yeah. very little, and and so yeah. So I think there's a lot to be said. Great, great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it was really lovely. Lovely to talk to you.